Welcome to The Alp, a series of one-on-one -on -one conversations with folks who have been climbing the leadership mountain in admissions land. Some are nearing the summit, some are already there, but how do they get there? And what can other climbers learn from their mindsets, habits, and experiences? I'm your host, Ken Anselman, VP for Enrollment and Communication and Dean of Admission at Lawrence University. And with me today is Angel Perez, VP for Enrollment and Student Success at Trinity College in Connecticut, where he also teaches in the Educational Studies Department. Before joining the Trinity team in 2015, he was the VP and Dean of Admission and Financial Aid at Pitzer College in Claremont, California. In addition to his day job, he's been engaged in a lot of other activities from the Gates Foundation to the New England Board of Higher Education to ensure equity of access opportunities for underserved student populations. Angel, welcome to the Alp. Thank you. Excited to be here. That's good to have you. So let's start. It's somewhat fortuitous that we're having this conversation right now. You, you just wrote a piece for Inside Higher Ed called, What is a Chief Enrollment Officer? And it gives really great insight, I think, into the challenges and tensions in the roles that you and I both have. What are some of the big things you're working on at Trinity right now? Um, I think there's a lot of different things that I'm trying to work on, and some of it is Trinity-specific, but some of it also lends itself to the work of the nation. Um, I think all institutions of higher education are trying to think about financial sustainability right now. Um, the price of college continues to climb. There is a demographic decline in students in the United States, which is really forcing all of us to think about the kinds of students that are walking into our doorsteps, but also how do we uh, think about the, our enrollment in the future. Um, I'm also thinking, obviously, a lot about the politics in the United States and how they land at our doorstep. I think one of the things most people don't realize is colleges and universities are microcosms of society, and especially when you're at small liberal arts colleges like ours, um, all of those tensions come together, um, which is somewhat exciting because I think, you know, I, I always say residential colleges are one of the greatest social experiments. You put all these people together and say, go at it. Um, but I also think then we end up as, as leaders really having to navigate that conflict and, and helping students figure it out. Um, so, so there's a lot of different things. And, and the other thing I would say that I think deeply about um, here at Trinity, but also across the nation, is access uh, to institutions like this. How do we prepare more students to take advantage of this kind of education as well? Yeah. So, you know, I know you've got a lot on on your plate, and 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 you mentioned in your article, and we'll have links to this in the in the show notes, so people can go back and read it if they haven't already. It's I highly recommend it. But uh, it, one of the things you say, Angel, is that most people, and this is a quote, most people who inherit the role were trained as admission officers, a job that rarely provides adequate preparation for the diverse responsibilities of today's enrollment manager. Um, I like your choice of verb, inherit. <laughs> uh, spot on in so many cases, uh, including my own. Uh, how did you go about getting prepared for those diverse responsibilities you mentioned? I mean, we're, the work you're doing right now, you mentioned the tensions in the, in the environment and the demographic challenges and the financial challenges. But you know, back when you were an admission officer yourself, what sort of experiences did you have that prepared you, if they could, for what you're dealing with now? Yeah, that's a great question. I The first thing I'll say is I think one thing that I have been really fortunate 
about is that I have had wonderful mentorship. Um, I have had amazing individuals throughout my career who have just tapped me on the shoulder and said, have you thought about this? Have you thought about maybe going for that? Um, mm. Have you maybe thought about this professional development opportunity? And so I actually have taken that very seriously in my own current role, whether it's with my own team, but also trying to do things for younger professionals um, in the field, because I think there is nothing more important than cultivating good people to do this work. Um, the other thing I would say is that I've always, I've just always been a student. And, and I don't mean that literally by getting, you know, several degrees, but also that I have also always in whatever position I have been in, tried to learn as much as I could, understand the industry, and also try to go outside of the industry to learn how to manage. For example, no one teaches you how to be a supervisor. No one teaches you how to run teams, how to inspire, um, and how to cultivate individuals. And so, you know, I'm a, a student of Harvard Business Review, and I'm always reading about leadership. And I really try to also step outside of the world of higher education to try to hmm. learn as much as I can and then bring it back. I mean, I actually took a team, um, uh, a team of mine to New York to go through a leadership training uh, with Danny Meyer, who's a Trinity alum, and he founded Shake Shack. And he does this oh, amazing, nice. yeah, I mean, he does this amazing training on uh, the culture of hospitality, and we wanted to translate it into higher education. And so the other thing that I've always done in my career is try to step out of higher ed and try to find the lessons in other industries and bring it back. Mm. I love that idea of the Shake Shack, not the least of which is it would give me a chance to take my team so I could leverage the opportunity to get some of the fine, exactly. fine stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you have a nugget or two from, from that particular thing, knowing that not everybody is going to be able to get to Shake Shack for this kind of training? Yeah, the 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 nugget I got from there, and actually it's something I, I've always believed in, and it's actually a Maya Angelou quote, which is people will may not remember what you said or what you did, but they will remember how you made them feel. And one of the things that has made a place like Shake Shack and actually Danny's um, Union Square Hospitality Group, all of the restaurants that he owns, is that he creates experiences for people that they will never forget. And so as we think about competitiveness in higher education, I've been thinking a lot about how do we distinguish ourselves as an institution? And, you know, I may not have the largest endowment, I may not have the largest national reputation, but I certainly can impact the way that our students and families feel when they walk in our doors and how we take care of them and how we cultivate them when we're here. Oh, I love that. I love that. You're, um, you know, one of the things I sometimes struggle with in my role, and I think it's partly the way I came up, and maybe this is you, maybe this is not you, but um, that blend of doing versus delegating. You know, the, the, in our roles, we're, we're called into a lot of meetings We're we're uh, sometimes it's faculty, sometimes it's students, sometimes it's our own staffers, but you know, how do you determine what to take on yourself? You know, how do you determine what to give as a gift to someone else on your team to, to run with? How do you get it done? Like that's probably the more practical question, Angel. I think it depends on where your organization is. So I'll use the example of Trinity College. When I first arrived here and the president asked me to oversee all of these different areas, I think I, I needed to be a little bit more in the weeds to really understand the work mm. and what it is that needed to get done. But as I 
started to understand the work and started to understand the priorities, I also made sure that I hired and trained and cultivated people who believed in the mission and the work and then really handed those things off to them so that I could be more the leader of leaders and mm. empower them to actually do the work and to advise me. I mean, you know, one of the things that, one of the biggest misconceptions I think that people have when they move into leadership roles is that they should always have the answer. And I didn't always have the answer. I mean- <laughs> Wait a minute, you know, what? <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, so I, I try to really surround myself by really smart people. Um, I remember a former college president that I used to work for said, if you're the smartest person in the room, you've done something wrong um, because you really should be advised by great people. And so, again, I just think it's where you are in the organization. But the goal should eventually be that you are not, um, you know, creating everything, having the answers for everything, but that you are empowering others to bring forth the mission that you and the institution sets. You described, though, what is the kind of the weird paradox in that role, which is you've got to have the courage to be humble. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it, it, I remember when I, you mentioned inherited earlier, you know, one day I was the director of admission, Steve Syverson retired, and the next day I was the dean of admission. And I was the same guy, but uh, in 24 hours, I was suddenly uh, changed completely as a human being who's supposed to be endowed with all of these powers. And you know, the bit of advice he gave me was don't, first of all, don't do it like I did and take your mm. time to take your time to find the answer. You don't have to have the answer right away, but that's a tough, that's a tough thing. I think where you feel like you've got to prove you belong. Oh, absolutely. And I think sometimes you will feel the pressure to make decisions. One of the things that my staff has come to understand about me is that I like to be thoughtful in my decision making, especially when it comes to really important things. And so I'll have people come into my office, you know, in the middle of the day and ask me a question to make a decision. And they're no longer surprised when I say, I'm going to take the weekend to think about that. And I write mm. myself a note and I do think about it. And sometimes the answer comes during a run or a hike. But, you know, I try not to make decisions instantly. And I think the more you can shift the culture in your organi organization to say, yes, it's okay just to take time to think about things, the better decision making will happen. Oh, I love that. That's a good tip. I'm putting that one in my, uh, <laughs> my, my to-do list. <laughs> I, I want to shift to something, uh, turn on the not so way back machine to 2008, I remember a piece you you wrote, I think it got the Muir Award for uh, the NACAC Journal, but about identity challenges faced by first-generation underrepresented students at elite schools who find themselves kind of living between two worlds, right? The one where they, they grew up and the one where, where they're now going to college. And you know, that wasn't, that was not only the experience of the young woman who was the focus of your article, but it was also your own experience. Um, how does that perspective affect how you use your role now? I actually think it impacts every single thing that I do every day, mm. the, the lens. And I think that would be similar for all of us, but the lens that we view the world through and how we grew up and our experiences inform our work. 
which is another reason why I think it's important to hire a diverse team so that you bring all those different perspectives into a room. Um, but for me, this is really deeply personal work, and I, I do see it as a privilege, as challenging as it is. And I wrote about those challenges in my article. Um, yeah. But you know, I've always said an institution of higher education took a chance on me. I, I was not, you know, I certainly was not someone who could write a check for then what we thought was a crazy amount, $30,000 a year. Um, oh, those were the days. <laughs> you know, those nice days when college was actually that amount. Um, and I certainly didn't have uh, good SAT scores, but an institution really saw a lot of potential. And for me, college was so transformative that uh, I just thought I've got to figure out a way to pay it forward. And I think what my own experience as a student who attended a highly selective liberal arts college at a predominantly white institution when diversity was very, very low at the time, it just helped create deep levels of empathy for that experience. Mm. Um, and I don't, I think many things have changed, but many things have stayed the same on college campuses. And so for me, it has helped me to really think about, for example, the experience for first generation, low income, marginalized students, um, also international students and, and what those experiences are like when they're coming to us. And so part of what I've really enjoyed doing in this work is not only focusing on my work here at Trinity or formerly at Pitzer around those populations and helping those students transition and be successful. But I also think, I always think about how do you scale this work, right? And so how am I going to take the lessons that I've learned personally, but also at these fabulous institutions that I've had the opportunity to work at? And how do I take those lessons and impact thousands of other people through policy mm. work or writing and speaking and engaging? You know, in that article, you mentioned your advice to the young woman that you met at that New England prep school. Uh, you said, uh, if you're wondering why you've been given an opportunity, don't. It's mm -hmm. yours and you have to make the most of it. Then reach back and pull someone behind you forward. So when you think back on your own climb in this profession, who, who are some of the folks who reached back to, to pull you forward? Wow, I have so many of them, and this I is am, your time to shout out. To yeah, them. <laughs> yeah, I have so many of them, and I'm eternally grateful uh, for some of them. Some of them worked at community-based organizations. I think of someone like Sean Calloway at Upward Bound at Pace University in New York City, who yes. actually saw me on a panel when I was a student at Skidmore College, mm. and came up to me afterwards and said, "Someday, I'd like you to work for me." Um, and I. Did end up working for him for a couple of years. Um, and, you know, I think of, uh, I had a lot of mentors at the Claremont Colleges because I actually was pretty young when I arrived in Claremont. And so I think of Victoria Romero, who gave me my first job in Claremont. She's now the vice president for enrollment at Scripps College, the women's college. Mm -hmm. um, I think of, so like you, Arnaldo Rodriguez, who was the vice president for admissions and financial aid at Pitzer, retired. And mm -hmm. within 24 hours, I took his job. Um, and, and you were so, ontologically uh, changed. Yeah, exactly. All of a sudden, I was a new person. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but he was such a tremendous mentor to me. And so I've had a lot of people in the field. But I would also say I've been really fortunate because I have also 
it's not like you stop learning and developing as a leader when you become a vice president. Actually, I feel like you start from scratch and, and start to gain new lessons. And so, for example, I would consider the, the current president that I work for, who I, I think is probably one of the best presidents in America, uh, an extraordinary leader who reaches back and really tries to help impart lessons and do a lot of leadership development with her team. So if mm. I could give one piece of advice to the next generation Please. who's listening to this podcast is choose your supervisors carefully. I think it's all about who you work for. And if you work for people who empower you uh, and who want to teach and develop leadership, your career will always be okay. That's great advice. That, that <laughs> I've been lucky. Sometimes you don't get to choose your supervisors, right? Um, or you hope for the best, and uh, that's that's I love that. Thank you. Have you have you had moments? And and I'll be honest, I have them all the time. But um, have you had moments where you question whether you could actually do what you're doing? You know, whether you had the <laughs> had the right stuff. Um, and more important, I mean, because we you know we all we all sometimes feel like we're going to get the tap on the shoulder, like, well, we've made a terrible mistake. You, <laughs> but mm -hmm. how, how do you break through those moments where you question whether you've got what it takes to do what you're doing or what you have to do next? Well, it's interesting because I think as higher ed professionals, we always talk to students about imposter syndrome totally. and the fact that, you know, you need to help yourself get over that. We all have imposter syndrome. You know, I've, this is my 22nd year doing this work. I doubt myself every single year. Every time I press <laughs> send on those applications, you know, in March when we press send and... I'm hoping for the right yield and the right revenue and the right class composition. I don't sleep for a month because I don't know if I did it well. Um, only a month? That's only it? a month, yes. <laughs> I, I try not to go crazy during the, the rest of the year. But I, I do think, and also every time there's a new challenge or we're presented with problem solving, I think all of us in these roles, we don't sometimes allow ourselves to show it because we have to be the strong leaders who look like, you know, we have it all under control. But I do think mm -hmm. most people need to realize that it's, it's normal that you are going to doubt yourself continuously. But I think pushing through is really important. And the other thing, the way that I push through is, again, to always stop and think and not jump to reaction because that's when we can make some poor decisions. And the other thing is that I do not do this work in a silo. So for example, when I, um, when the president told me that I was now in charge of career development, which I knew nothing about career development at the time, I said, sure, yes, I can help you with that. I decided I needed to become a student of career development. I visited uh, offices that were engaging in best practices. I started reading the research. I started mm. interviewing people. And so, you know, part of what you do when you feel like you are faced with this monumental task that you might fail at is go and find people who were successful in that. And I think you would probably agree with this, Ken, that we work in a profession that it, people are so forthcoming with information and they want to help each other. And so whenever I picked up the phone in any of the areas that I oversee and said, I really need to learn this, I never got a no from any mm. of my colleagues across mm. the country. Yeah, I, I'm totally with you on that. But I'm struck so many times throughout my career where you have people who are in direct competition with each other who are so forthcoming with 
how they can how they struggle with their own jobs and the things that they do to to do it better it's it's this weird blend of competition and collegiality that that i i love about this um and and i and I'm, I'm, it sounds like that's been your experience too absolutely so y- you're a lifelong learner yay liberal arts um <laughs> The more practical question, how do you fit all of this in? I mean, how, how do you manage your, I'm looking for personal tips here. Listener, you can yeah. drop out at this point, but <laughs> you do sleep. Although for that month, you said after you uh, mail your decisions, you don't, but how, how do you make, find, uh, and use the time? Yeah, that's a great question. And I will say I I am continuously evolving on this mm. topic. Mm. Um, I think I have had moments in my career, especially earlier when I was, was a newbie as a vice president or a dean, I think I, I didn't sleep as much um, and I felt like I needed to do so much learning. Um, what I have what I have come to understand over time is that self-care is so important. I was not very good at it, I would say, mm. for a long time. Um, and I would do crazy things like become a dean and try to get a PhD at the same time, which I yeah, do I not necessarily <laughs> recommend. Um, well done. But, but it was it got done. Um, but I would say, you know, I, I think people need to understand that um, in these jobs, there will be ebbs and flow, um, you know, like during the summertime, it will it will slow down a little bit and you'll be able to get a sense of normalcy. And then there will be times where for six weeks straight, you are working seven days a week and uh, working 12 hour days. So I think everyone has, you know, their definition of self-care is different. Uh, for me, I, mornings are sacred to me. And so I try to wake up and um, whether it's a little meditation or going for a run, I think that's really important. Mm. Um, but I But I also think that, you know, I don't want upcoming leaders to fool themselves. The pace is really intense. Um, and, you know, what people don't realize, for example, and Ken, I'm sure you can empathize with this, is we are scheduled sometimes 10, 11, 12 hours a day, back to back with meetings or events or ceremonies. Every single one of those things requires a follow-up. Every single one of those things requires a report or an email. And while we are in all of those meetings, our email is going 100 miles an hour. And so I, I often say that I have two different kinds of jobs, right? I have my day job where it's forward-facing and I'm problem-solving and I'm meeting with folks on campus or around the country. And then the second job starts when I get home and I have to start following up on all of these Mm. different things. And so our jobs have evolved in a different way as well. But that's why I think it's ever more important to find at least an hour a day that is for you, um, where also you can think. Because the thing that I actually regret the most in, in these positions is I don't have a lot of time to think. And I have to really carve out the time to do that if I'm going to be a good leader. That's great advice. Yeah, that's, and I know that's something I struggle with. Uh, when I am mindful enough about it, I schedule out a, a block, an hour, and it just, uh, it says GTD on it. Mm. And people who can see my schedule know that that is getting things done. I um, like that. I'm going to do that. <laughs> and it's it, it, because it's always so easy to give over your own time to someone else. And, and I know there's a lot of pressure for us to do that in leadership roles, but sometimes the best thing we can do is also create that time that makes us even better leaders on the other end of it. Too. Can I give one other piece of advice? Yeah, that please. Actually, 
comes from Oprah Winfrey. Um, who <laughs> oh, I, yeah. I am, a big, <laughs> I am a big fan of Oprah, everyone who knows me. Um, but she did a podcast. And um, one of the things that I learned from this podcast is that early on in your career, you need to say yes a lot. Right. And so when people are inviting you to things and as higher ed professionals, when people are saying, please do my program and come on this panel. Yes, you have to say yes a lot, because that is how you develop your career. As your career evolves, your success is dependent on saying no. And that took me about 20 years to learn um, because I didn't want to disappoint people. And so I would say yes to everything, everything I was invited to. Sure, I can fly to California for a day and do that. Um, and then when I found myself exhausted and having nothing left to give, mm. I realized I was not doing anyone a good service. And so now I actually feel really confident about saying no and understanding that I need to really think about um, if I say yes to this one thing, what am I sacrificing on the other end, whether it's personal or for my institution or my students? Well, that is uh, that gives me occasion then to say thank you for saying yes to this particular <laughs> interview, knowing how this full was fun. your schedule this was fun. is. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. And and you could have said no, but um, knowing how busy you are, but I, I do appreciate you making the time. And there's a lot of great things in here for, for people to take to heart. And so now let's begin, since we've climbed the leadership mountain, let's let's begin our rapid descent. So it's a series of quick seven questions that I want to ask every one of our guests. Uh, and uh, of course, this will also uh, lend itself well to the show notes, but um, rapid, re rapid descent. So ready for number one, Angel? Let's do it. All right. What's your walkout song, your hype song? We are the champions by Queen. What's the best thing you've read lately? Uh, the book Educated by Tara Westover. And how about the book you are eager to read next? Actually, I don't have one, but I'll say, given the passing of Maya Angelou, there's several of her mm. books I need to catch up on. So I, to honor her, I'm going to do that. Okay. What's your favorite thing to make in the kitchen? Uh, actually, Puerto Rican food. So I, um, I spent my earlier years in Puerto Rico, and so some arroz con gandules and some pork chops makes my day any day. Awesome. What do you use to take and keep your notes? iPad. I do not okay. leave home without it. And do you use, what, what tool do you use on iPad? I actually use the, the notes, um, notes? On, on the iPad, yeah. Cool. What's a memorable bit of advice you've received, either for its goodness or its badness? The only thing you can control is your reaction. Oh, nice. And in these jobs, you have to learn that pretty early. Oh, I love that. And finally, name an item on your bucket list that you haven't yet checked off. I would really like to go to Antarctica. I've been to all six continents. I've been privileged to do so, but I got to get to Antarctica and cross off that seven. Uh, I'll just take the postcard you send me from there. <laughs> It'll have a penguin on it. I promise you. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, Angel Perez, it's been a real pleasure having you here on the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for doing this, Ken. Uh, in the meantime, I will say I'll provide links to all the articles we've discussed, as well as uh, some uh, links to your rapid descent answers. If you have any recipes you need to send, please, uh, please let me know and I'll put them on there. Um, in the meantime, may all of your enrollment dreams come true, Angel, uh, at least the good ones. Um, 
not the nightmares. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And to you, dear listener, thanks for listening. Be well and do well. 